We're going to read just a a few verses. Um, I'm not going to cover every verse in the book of Hosea. Uh, It's a lot to cover, and uh, and I think we will get the, the very gist of the message by hitting a few of the highlights in the book of Hosea. Hosea is divided up into two sections. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 tell us about Hosea's life, his family, and that itself is a picture of the message that God is sharing with people. And then 4 through 14, through the end of the book, is a covenant lawsuit that God has, is proclaiming against his own people. They have broken faith with him. And so today, we are starting that section beginning in chapter 4, where God starts his covenant lawsuit against his own people. And he is going to tell them certain things where they have broken the covenant, and he's also going to reveal some of the punishments that are going to come upon them for breaking faith with their God. So with that in mind, let's hear Uh, We'll begin reading uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Now flip over to chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. We know something about spring rains these days, don't we? For I desire, or let's look at verse 6 now, chapter 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Oh, may God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. These are some of the highlights I want to touch on today. And I want to ask a very important question, one that I think would appeal to everybody. Uh, and the question is this, what do you want? Uh, what do you what do you want? What do you what do you want for yourself? I mean that's a that's a fun question, isn't it? Because uh, we like to have our desires met. What do you want? It's a fun question, but not easy easily answered. Because we often don't know exactly what we really want, and we'll explore that in a minute. We're going to look at three questions. In order to explore that question, we're going, to look, we're going to ask three questions, and these are going to be the three points that I cover today. First, what does God want for you? What does God want for you? And then second, what do you want for yourself? And then thirdly, what does the world want for you? Well, let's, first of all, look at what does God want for you. Right off the bat here, we see... Uh, what God wants in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So the Lord has a controversy. He's got a dispute. That's what this word means, a quarrel. Uh, It's the word for a lawsuit. He's bringing them before the court of judgment. And he's saying, 
Here's the problem. Here's what's, what's not right. There is no faithfulness, steadfast love, nor knowledge of God in the land. And the implication, of course, is that there should be. Now, let's break these words down a little bit. First of all, faithfulness, because some of these words are a little more complicated than what they seem at first glance. The word faithfulness means trueness, fidelity, constancy. It's the language of marriage. You know, we want faithfulness in marriage, constancy in devotion to one another. That's what he's saying. There's no faithfulness. This relationship is broken. I'm being faithful on my end, God says, but you're not being. You're running off to other gods. You, you are acting like a prostitute. That's the picture that he gives in 1 through 3. When, he, when Hosea is called to marry Gomer, and she runs off and falls into prostitution. And it's a picture of God's people who have run off to other gods and have been unfaithful to God, their God, their maker, their husband, if you will. So there's no faithfulness, there's no fidelity in the relationship between God and his people. There's no steadfast love. Now this, this is a really uh, heavy, heavily packed word uh, that, that has a lot of, of nuanced meaning. It, it, it is indicative of a loving relationship where individuals have a zeal for one another. Steadfast love. A real passion, uh, love kindness and loyalty, a commitment to one another. It's a relational word, a, a word that indicates a bond of love, steadfast love, mutually committed to one another. God says, there's no steadfast love in this relationship. I'm steadfastly loving you, but you're unfaithful, unsteadfast, disloyal to me. And then knowledge. He says there's no knowledge of God in the land. There's no understanding of God. Again, think about how a spouse might use this word. Not how a teacher would use this word. We've got a lot of teachers in the house. You know, when we talk about a teacher and giving knowledge, they usually give information, facts about things. You're learning, you know, arithmetic and you're learning how to read. There's, there's, there's a body of knowledge. We're not talking about intellectual knowledge. We're talking about intimate knowledge, relational knowledge, understanding them as a person, knowing what they're all about. You know, isn't that what you want in a relationship? You want to be known, not just known about. You want someone to know who you are and what you're all about. And if you're married to someone long enough, you should discover that. You know what they're all about. You understand where they're coming from, even though everybody else might think that they're crazy. You understand them because you know them. Sarah does that. She, she, she understands me, even though everybody else thinks I'm crazy. She might not like it all that much, but she understands it. So God is saying, look, you don't know me. You don't understand me. You're not, you're not, you don't understand where I'm coming from. And that's a problem. Because he knows us intimately. Now, in verse 6, chapter 6, he tells us specifically what he wants. I desire steadfast love, that, that word. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I don't care so much about 
you being religious and going through a bunch of rituals as much as I want to have a relationship with you, a real relationship with you. The same thing a wife might say. I don't want you to just, you know, go through the motions of giving me an anniversary present or remembering my birthday. I want you to truly mean it. I want you to to show some creativity and that you really do care for me and not just going through the motions. I want you to know me and not just say you do. God wants, that word means desires or delights in, takes pleasure in, us knowing Him. Not just about Him, but knowing Him in a loving, committed relationship. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment. It is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's Deuteronomy 6. It's repeated all throughout the Bible. Jesus reaffirms it in the New Testament. This is what God uh, wants from you. This is what God desires for you. Humans were created to be in this love relationship with God. We were created for this very purpose. When Adam and Eve sinned against God... In the Garden of Eden, what did they do? They hid from God. They pulled away from the relationship. They didn't want to to be known by God anymore. They, They wanted to go their own way. They wanted to be their own gods, and they didn't want God around or to know what they had done. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, Adam and Eve, was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up their own, uh, set up on their own, as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness, uh, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. We were created for this very purpose, to know God, to glorify and enjoy him as our Westminster Confession of Faith says. What does God want? It's not a difficult question to answer. He tells us in this text and throughout the Bible, He desires steadfast love, knowledge of God. Now, my second question is a little more difficult to answer, though this is the one that we really like to think about. What do you want for yourself? What do you want for yourself, for your life? What do you desire? more than anything else in the world? What do you long for? What motivates your life? What do you really want? 
Now these questions, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, these questions are not easily answered because our brains get in the way. Our brains have an answer that comes up, possibly, that, that uh, we'll, we'll say there because we think that's the right answer. We know what we should want, possibly. We know what we should love, possibly. But the true answer is not found necessarily in our brains. The true answer is undoubtedly found in our hearts. That's where, that's where the seat of our love is. Our hearts are the center of our desires. Everyone here has his or her heart set on something. We use that kind of language. I had my heart set on that new dress. I had my heart set on the promotion at work. I had my heart set on going to the Shuckers game last night. I had my heart set on... You know, we, we talk that way. We, it's a, single, uh, a single-minded desire for something. Our heart is set on it. And we cannot help it. Our hearts are always set on something. We might think we know what that is, but how do we really know what it is? Each of us is longing for something. And what we're longing for is what we would call a version of the good life. What's going to make my life good and worth living? And we have ideas about what that should be. And we actually live in a certain certain way, in the way that we do live, because we are pursuing some sort of version or vision of the good life that we think that is the good life. And often we don't even perceive what that good life is that we're pursuing because it's kind of like breathing or blinking. You know, you sat here for how long? 45 minutes. And no one here has thought about breathing. No one has consciously decided to blink until now. (laughs) Now everybody's thinking about breathing and blinking. You know, it's something that we don't even think about. Well, often the desire of our heart is something that we're not even aware of, but our lives are centered around it. Our lives are pursuing it. It's just there in our hearts. How do you know what version of the good life you are pursuing? How do you know what is that thing that I really want? Well, don't look at what you think as much as you look at what you do. Your your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. The love and desire in your heart motivates and propels you in life. It gets you up in the morning. It informs your choices. You do certain things without even thinking about them. You don't even consciously reason why you do them. Like driving a car. You know, when you first drive a car, you're thinking about everything. You know, a 15-year-old is learning how to drive. They're, you know, it's overwhelming. You've got to steer. You've got to keep it between the lines. You've got to remember where your feet go and you're moving the shifter and you're giving the blinker and... Uh, it's a lot to remember. But how many times have experienced drivers been so upset at work, you hop in the car and you're just fuming and thinking about that and you drive all the way across town and all of a sudden you say, well, I'm in my driveway. I don't even remember driving here. I didn't think one bit about driving. 
See, it's become just a habit, a way of life. When we set our hearts on certain things, the desire of our heart, it becomes just the way of life. We don't think about it anymore. We haven't consciously decided to be a certain way. But something is compelling you, and that something is the desire in your heart. What would compel a man to work 80 hours a week at a job he hates? Well, it's because he is compelled by a vision of the good life that says, I must have money so that I can have all the toys that I want and and do what I please. Consuming things and buying things and possessing things. That would drive a man to do that. But the man doesn't consciously think about it each day. He just has fallen into the habit of doing that. And he's pursuing that desire because he loves money. He would never admit, I'm greedy. Have you ever met anybody that says, yeah, I'm greedy. (laughs) And I'm embracing it fully with my lifestyle. I mean, not even the most greedy people in the world would say that. But that same man might think, you know, I love my wife more than anything, yet never speak to her. Doesn't enjoy listening to her stories about her day. Doesn't want to spend time with her. Now, a man who behaves in that sort of manner might think he loves his wife, but he does not love his wife. But his wife will know the truth, even though he might think and say something differently. His actions speak louder than his words. That's all I'm saying here. Your actions speak about what your heart desires. It tells you what you really want. So don't look at what you think you love, what you think you desire, what you believe to be the good life, look at your daily life. Look at your habits. You do what you love. You are what you love. Now, if I were to ask the question, do you love God? You know, we're here in church. We're Christian people. Yeah, I love God, but do you really love God more than anything else? Do you... Enjoy Him? Do you like being in His presence? Do you want to be with Him more each day? Do you leave church reluctantly, wishing that it would go on? Do you go home and say, you know, I need some more of God. I want to go pick up my Bible and read it. I'm going to spend some time praying to God, speaking to Him. You know, as you think about these things, and as I think about these things, I'm wondering, do I even like God? Because my actions often don't exhibit that I have a love for God. When I began to date my wife, many of you can uh, remember this experience. He's so excited to be with him all the time, to talk on the phone constantly. You couldn't get enough of going out and eating and hearing about their life and who they were and discovering one another and, and you just were full of the other person. That's a passionate love relationship. And that's what God desires. And we say we like that, but we don't really, do we? We don't really want Him. 
We want some version of the good life. And sometimes we will use God to try to get that version of the good life. That's another sermon all on its own. According to the Bible, our greatest delight would be in God if we would just taste and see that the Lord is good. Do our actions say that we believe that? What do you really, really want? In the Bible, God gives us a version of the good life, his version of the good life, the true good life. The problem we have is that we buy into competing versions of the good life that the world sells us. And that's what I want to look at really quickly here. Third point. Two young fish are swimming upstream. Swimming away happily, an old fish is swimming downstream. And as he passes the two young fish, he says, Hi, how's the water? And they both swim on in their various directions. A bit later... As the young fish are swimming in silence, one of the young fish turns to the other and goes, What is water? That's a picture of the world, our environment that we live in. We may not be aware of the environment that we live in, but our environment is there whether we understand it or not. And and what we need to do is stop and say, Look, I'm living in a world, an environment that is selling things to me, telling me uh, that I need certain things, a version of the good life. We live in America. We are bombarded constantly that we need to consume more material possessions. And the good life is having money to buy more stuff. I ate dinner with my uncle last night, Sarah and I did, and we laughed at him because he has a flip phone, you know, an old 90s flip phone. And we said, you know, you should upgrade and get into the 21st century. And he's like, why? This, this, this will call anybody in the world that I want to call. This will receive phone calls from anybody in the world that I want to receive phone calls from. And he was exactly right. I saw a commercial on TV the other day. Um, and, and it was... Uh, it was a commercial for a, sh- uh, a website that sold women's shoes. And it said, you know, you can buy all these women's shoes for cheap. And different women were chiming in. And one woman said, I've bought shoes and now uh, I stopped counting at 125 pairs in my closet. And I stopped and go, wow, you could wear, I was trying to do the math, you know, you could go through the whole year and only wear, you know, wear a different pair for like four months and never wear the same pair of shoes. And then I thought about my own closet, and I was like, well, I don't have that many shoes. And then I thought about the shoes I'm wearing now, and I remember when I bought them. It was November of 2001. If these shoes were in school, they'd be in the ninth grade. They have been resold a few times. But, you know, that commercial and and really all the advertisements that we're bombarded with are telling us, look, you don't have this, you need it in order to have the good life, in order to be truly American or whatever it might be. And we, we just go, oh, okay. We're not aware of the water in which we live. So we need to stop and say, look, do I really need the latest phone every time my contract's up? Not really. No, not at all, really. And really the most important question to 
to ask is, what do we really love and desire? You know, is it a competing version of the good life or is it God's version of the good life? Is your life, your habits and practices just simply adopted uh, from the world around you? See, this is what the Israelites in Hosea's day were doing. They were buying into the, the, what the Canaanites were selling with their temple prostitutes and their fun worship that was much more exciting than the worship of Israel and, and God's worship. And it was working for them. They were flourishing. They had good crops. Uh, during that era, they, had, uh, they, were up, they were on a roll, so to speak. They had a little bit of political clout and military power. And they were worshiping these false gods. We might say the same thing. Well, it's working for me. I do have a lot of toys. I'm, I'm flourishing, but do you know the Lord? Because that's the most important thing. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. So depart from me. Now if we find our love for the Lord is lacking, which <laughs> I, hope, I hope we all do, because we could always love the Lord more, because we're sinners and our love grows cold. Have you found your love for the Lord growing cold? Or have you ever, are you wondering, if, have I ever really loved the Lord? How do I get a taste for the Lord? You have to understand that everybody has their heart set on something. And, and you just can't pull that something out, rip it out. It can't be just removed. It has to be replaced. You have to set your love on something new. Something, and that something new has to... You have to see that it is more valuable, more important more glorious, more majestic, more satisfying than what you were loving before. So the only way to get a taste for the Lord is to taste the Lord, to taste and see, call to worship today. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Get a taste for Him. Acquire a taste for the Lord. Habits not only reveal our loves, habits also dictate our loves. If we start uh, spending time doing the things that we might not want to do or might not be inclined to do, pretty soon you find, you've, oh, I, I kind of like doing this. I kind of have found a taste for it. Like a wine connoisseur. I don't know anybody that the first time they ever tasted wine, they go, ooh, that's great. They go, ooh, this, this tastes weird. But maybe after a while they acquire a taste for it. And they like to, to discern. They go to wine tastings and they're into it. You know, and they love the whole experience. I'm not encouraging anyone to become a wino, by the way. But acquiring a taste for the, for the Lord, we must taste and taste again and see how good He is. Read His Word. Spend time in worship. And let's do that really quickly, just in a few moments, because I know I'm over time. But just look at the Lord for a moment. What kind of lover is He to us? 
He is a God who pursues us, even though we are unfaithful, even though, as he says in the passage, your love is like, a, like the dew in the morning that quickly disappears. We're this way, but God keeps coming after us. Look at what he did for the Israelites. He loved them so much he sent Hosea to them to give them this message and not only to just speak to them, but he tells Hosea, okay, go marry a prostitute who's going to be unfaithful to you. And then she's going to have children that are not your children, but you're going to have to take care of them. And is you know, is a bad picture. But then he says to Hosea, after she's done this thing, go and buy her back. Go down to the market where they deal in human flesh and buy your wife back. And bring her back home. And that's what God has done for us. He loved Israel so much, he sent Hosea to do this. He loved us so much, he pursues us so much, he himself took on human flesh himself. And he pursued us outside the city to the most unsavory part of town, Golgotha. Garbage dump where they crucified people. And he bought us back. That's the kind of lover he is to us. Doesn't that make your heart want to go out to him and love him in return? That's what it is to to worship the Lord and to reach out to him and to return to him, to think about who he is and what he's done. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Lord, we are as guilty before you as the Israelites of old were, who were so rebellious against your prophet Hosea, for example, and and the other prophets. And like them, you have often tried to sweetly allure us to yourself without any success. And like them, we have not ceased to provoke your wrath by our continual obstinacy. O Lord, move us with the warnings of judgment you give us through these prophets and others, that we may humble ourselves before your face and not wait until you bring judgment upon us. Convince us that you are ready to be reconciled to us in Christ, that you are actually pursuing us even here today bringing this, this message of reconciliation. Lord, may we flee to you. May we flee to Christ as our mediator and rely on his intercession, his finished work on the cross to bring us back into a love relationship with you. Help us to not doubt that you are ready to give us pardon and cleansing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.